even whatever normal stigma might apply to thinking about being a new mom, tripping on mushrooms, was amplified. You're listening to The Bee Podcast. Make friends, learn new things, and feel understood. Now here's your host, Sage Lally. Hey you, and welcome back to The Bee Podcast. I'm your host, Sage, and today I am so excited to be chatting with Micah Stover. Micah was raised by evangelicals on a farm in rural Tennessee and is now far from home in Mexico, where she resides with her family and works as an integrative support therapist with trauma survivors. Micah is currently writing and revising a memoir, chronicling the path to heal intergenerational trauma and PTSD with MDMA, psilocybin, and guided psychotherapy. Micah's forthcoming prescriptive memoir, due in fall 2022, takes the reader on an epic journey from the near loss of her son in the NICU through an ancestral underground riddled with trauma. Divided into three parts, the memoir's structure mirrors the arc of the psychedelic healing journey, beginning with preparation, moving into the psychedelic world, and finally emerging into a new landscape of integration. It balances theory, instruction, exercises, and narrative to help the reader walk away with a visceral understanding of how to pursue this healing path and what it might entail. Hi, Micah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So before we get started, I would love if you could tell me a bit more about who you are and what you do. My name is Micah, and I work as a psychedelic guide and integration specialist, and that is a fancy way of saying that I work with psychedelic medicines, two very specifically, one MDMA and the other psilocybin, and I have been working in this capacity over the last five years. Prior to that, I had a life coaching practice for about 10 years, and what kind of shifted the, the move for me from my sort of quote unquote, normal mainstream coaching practice into the psychedelic world is that I had a very traumatic experience, both getting pregnant and then having my oldest son. It started with my own healing process. And then once I had sort of gone through, people often refer to it as the dark night of the soul, my own sort of experience of that and come out on the other side where I was like, okay, I think I'm stable. We're going to be okay. Some big stuff just happened. It was really clear that I wanted my own coaching practice to evolve in that way. And so I did a mentorship program with um, the person who had guided me through my healing process, who had done her, her training through the MAPS protocol, which MAPS is for anyone in this world, it's kind of the, the main entity managing the clinical trials and everything to move this towards, you know, the, the frontier of mental health therapy in the future. How did you go from, okay, I need to work on this to I'm going to start macro dosing psilocybin and MDMA? Yeah, it does seem like a leap. And I will be the first to say that That is not what I expected to be doing in my like early days of motherhood. Not at all. Um, A little context about my background. I was raised in a very, very insidious evangelical context in the deep South. So even whatever normal stigma might apply to thinking about being a new mom, tripping on mushrooms, was 
amplified given that evangelical background. So nothing, if you would have told me that that's what would have happened, that's what I would have been doing, I would have said, you're crazy. But I had experienced a kind of, I don't know if I think calling it a psychological break is too strong of a term, but I I definitely had a breakdown of some point when I was around 16 years old. Um, I had you know, just again, coming from that really intense evangelical background, my father was a child of a lot of abuse of, you know, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. And he was raised in a generation where it was absolutely not okay, especially for men to get psychological help and support. And again, because of that evangelical component, it was really like, anything you struggle with, you just give it to God. So that was really his method for trying to cope, except the God figure in his world was this paternal judging one. He basically sort of did his best to raise me out outside of his pain, but his pain was not resolved. So by the time I got to like 13, 14 years old, I was in pretty deep unconscious crisis. Like I felt unsafe. I felt like nothing was in my control. I was very micromanaged. Um, My mother had her own sort of separate issues, I think vicarious PTSD from my dad. And one of the ways that she managed her stress was to control her, her eating. So there were like years of my life where she was fasting. That was like a big thing during the 80s when I was growing up. So I think it kind of naturally evolved that I thought, well, I'll control my food. That's a thing that I see women controlling. So it was not about being skinny or, you know, anything like that. It was more just a thing to control. And every time I could stretch it a little bit further without eating, I felt like I had more of a handle on the rest of the world that felt out of control. So that all sort of started around the time I was like 14, 15. By the time I was 16, I like my I, I had no more menstrual cycles. You know, I was in a pretty precarious health situation. Like I would wake in the morning and there was, you know, chunks of hair on the pillow. It just wasn't, it wasn't pretty, but I was I was still a kid, so I didn't know really what was going on. And one day I was driving and I basically passed out in at the wheel. And when I woke, I had gone across the road, landed upside down, you know, in a field of cows. And it was really a wake up moment. By the time I made it out of the ravine and up onto the road, there were already fire trucks there and like ambulances. I had like a mild concussion. No, no scrapes, no cuts. Like it really was this moment of thinking, I, I don't want to die. And this is not living and something needs to change. And so up to that point, I basically followed every rule given to me. I'd done, I'd achieved every challenge put in front of me because I was striving so hard to feel safe and secure. And once that all sort of happened, I started questioning everything. And so one of the things that I started questioning was all the rules around this is sinful, that is sinful. And that included things like smoking pot, um, definitely doing drugs. So my first introduction really to, to quote unquote drugs was cannabis when I was about 16 years old. 
And at that point, you know, I hadn't really eaten in a normal functioning way for about two years. So the, the cannabis was the first tool that really helped my body learn to have an appetite again, to process and digest food. And so once I had that experience, it was like, oh, wow, maybe these are tools and not bad things. And so that was really my in- introduction into psychedelics. And then I think fast forward 20 years later, I never expected that that's what would come back to the surface, least of all when I had a kid, because throughout that 20 years, I'd gone on to, you know, have a successful career. I was happily married. I'd lived in other countries. All sorts of things had happened. But I think they were more like looking back, I think they were more layers on top to try to not deal with the stuff that was most deeply rooted rooted down in the core and unresolved. Can you tell me about your first experience using psilocybin or MDMA? I could, you know, the little rule follower in me was like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'd had such a positive experience of being able to eat again by, by smoking pot. I thought, wonder what these other things might offer me. The first experience that I had eating mushrooms was very much in a, in like a recreational, I I think like the sort of cliche, um, dazed and confused, like my peers, I don't know if they were having the same sort of deep reflective experience that I was having. But when I first felt the medicine come on, the first sort of message, if you will, that I heard was this, you're not the thing that's broken you're not the thing that's broken. And it was like for the next five hours, I just kept hearing some sort of like gentle voice in the background saying that over and over and over again. And, you know, I mean, even thinking about that now, all all of these years later, it's so profound to me because that little girl, ultimately, I mean, I was 16, so not really a little girl, but the little girl inside of that 16 year old trying to become a woman really felt that she was the broken thing. So that was such a powerful turning point for me. Similarly with MDMA, it was right around, it might've even been on my 18th birthday. Um, but it was a small group of friends and I had never done it before. I didn't really even know what it was, but I decided to try it. And it it was a similar sort of experience to this, the experience I had with psilocybin in which I kind of received one predominant message and that permeated the whole experience, which you can be anywhere from like three to six hours. In this case, the message was you are worthy of love you are worthy of love. And that, you know, it's like two sides of the same coin. You're not broken and you're worthy of love. But I I think that I had felt up to that point, love was a thing I needed to earn, not something that I was inherently worthy of because that had not been my experience. How are you going about writing about these experiences? The first part of the book is preparation. How do you prepare? How did I prepare? What are some of the exercises I do with my clients? The middle section of the book is all sort of narrative. It's, and those narratives are born directly from psychedelic journeys. 
So they are like the stories that were revealed to me personally in the psychedelic space. So I really want the reader to kind of be able to imagine and engage their own sort of curiosity around, huh, this psychedelic world that's so sort of enigmatic, this is what it could feel like or be like. And then the the last part, the third part of the book is all about integration. Okay, what do we do with all of those stories? That we're, that, I mean, the medicine sort of speaks almost like in allegories, you know, like they're sort of like, uh, it's a very Jungian way of thinking about archetypes and symbols and metaphors. How do we translate those back in an everyday applicable way to translate into a better experience of life? Are you in a place where you could read us any of the book? One of the, the exercises that and I learned this in my training, and it's now something I do with my clients, is I'll work with them and when we're going through the preparation parts to sort of say, what are some of the parts within you that you feel like are maybe not in the healthiest alignment? Like, then that may be a part like, well, I have a really anxious part, or I have a really paranoid part. For me, I had a part that I named vigilance. This was the part of me that was just like hyperactive and on it, rooted in good intention, but just manic. Um, So I had identified that as one of the parts that I wanted to really visit in the medicine space. Like I wanted to set a meeting with that part of me and understand what was driving her. So this is that part. I felt vigilance first as this awakening from numb. Then I saw that she was the five-year-old girl inside of me in the church, running through the halls and the fields in her backyard, trying to hide, scrubbing her hands and her body, hoping to wash away a filth and shame that wasn't hers, but got passed down the generational line. Eyes closed again, I saw her so clearly, the same age as my son. I saw my father also, but not as my father rather as his five-year-old little boy self, running and chased through the fields of his boyhood, another childhood lost in the void. In the midst of that great expansive field, the three of us stood there together and apart, so young and tender, before the hurt place took over. I saw us like stair steps of possibility, death and resurrection, the promise of innocence, the tragedy of childhood lost to unresolved pain. Inside vigilance, underneath those rattling bones, rested my voice, my orgasm, my creativity, my rage, and the deepest essence of my love. My power pulsed out from her. With my son on one side and my father on the other, the path forward was clear. The pain story ends with me. I took my son's hand and we walked out of those scarce fields into the golden sun, never looking back over our shoulders. Vigilance used to be a bird in a cage with clipped wings, but not anymore. That was very poetic. I I really (laughs) enjoyed that. I would love to know before you go where we can find you on the internet. I have two main websites. Um, my, my main sort of coaching website is just my name, micastoverconsulting.com. So you can find me there. And then my, my, my medicine work and my blog is 
called sugarfootjourney.com. And that you can also link to from my coaching website. So if you find your way to one, you can find your way to the other. Thank you for listening to The Bee Podcast with your host, Sage Lally. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave us a review. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Your story has the power to help others. If you step out in boldness and have the bravery to tell it, there are people here who will listen. You just have to speak. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.